he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him amongst the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man is learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we recognize our frailty, our smallness before your word. Tom did this so well in Sunday school over the last several weeks to show how our knowledge, what we are so sometimes quite so proud of, is so small before your text. 
And even in here, passages like this, a book that we love, that we've read many times, we ask that you would speak and that we would hear. May we see Jesus, Lord, we pray in his name. Amen. I'm going to start with a song. I'm not singing it, but start with a song. In fact, actually, it's a song I'm assuming many of you, just judging by the ages and how well I know you, many of you probably won't know it. Some of you will, though. It's a song by a band called Depeche Mode. came out when I was 10 years old. Right in that gap of stuff that I probably shouldn't remember, but I do. Depeche Mode was a band that I really can't in any way endorse. They had a number of hits in America, but they went stale for a time. And after they had been stale for a time, they wrote their new hit song that in classic rock and roll form, they knew would offend everybody. It was actually a song that was built on Elvis Presley. They had just finished reading a biography of Elvis Presley and wrote a song based on Priscilla and Elvis. They titled the song, Personal Jesus. It has since been kind of spun as your own personal Jesus. And it goes on to describe a relationship between two people conducted over the phone where one person is needy and broken and therefore I will become your personal Jesus. I will offer the things to you that you need. I will be your deliverance. I will be your helper. I'm not really going to read the song lyrics because I can't endorse them. But the point becomes that the author of the song is a Jesus that you can actually interact with. It's a Jesus that you actually want. A Jesus that actually fits your needs. A Jesus that's actually there for you. You see, that was actually the sneaky part of the song. They held forth the idea of a Jesus that's flesh and blood, a Jesus that really helps. A Jesus on the other end of the phone line, a Jesus that's actually me. This song has since been covered by a number of folks, some quite ironically and some quite intentionally. The two most famous covers of this song were taken by two completely opposite people with intentionally opposite meanings. First, Marilyn Manson covered it as a tremendous slander to the name of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, Johnny Cash, a man whom I firmly believe I will see in heaven when I get there. I look forward to talking with him, a man who understood the brokenness of the world and intentionally turned it on his head to say, I will tell you about Jesus. He put it on an album of songs explicitly designed to point people to the Lord Jesus. But I think the song more than anything captures uh, the temptation of humanity, a temptation that is common to all of us, and a temptation we've been talking about a lot in the book of John. It's the temptation to take the Lord Christ not on His terms, but on my terms. To take... Not a God in whose image I am made, but to attempt to create a God in my own image. To make my own personal Jesus, to make my own King and Savior. 
This is happening here in chapter 7. John is fast-forwarded a little bit from chapter 6, and we're nearing the end of Jesus' ministry and the end of his life already. This is taking place in October of 29 AD. It's the last great, uh, great religious feast of the year, and this is actually the last religious festival Jesus will go to prior to the Passover where he dies. This is it. It's nearing the end. It's the biggie. This is taking place at the time of the Feast of Booths. Now, you may have in your translation the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, This was kind of the end of year, end of harvest celebration for the Jews. It was a celebration connected with, obviously, the harvest, so therefore completion, fulfillment, God's blessing, um, God's provision, and ultimately kind of kingship. It's all of the things that we associate with the second coming for believers. The, The yay, happy side of the faith is all connected to kind of this feast. It was the big one out of kind of really the Jewish calendar as it was the harvest. And in fact, the way they celebrated is that everybody, the entire nation, all of the Jews basically camped out together. They built booths or tabernacles. They built tents. They went camping. And they had feasts and festivals and they ate and they drank and they were excited because God had provided the harvest. And if you think about if you really only got maybe two paychecks a year, the week after you get the paycheck is going to be a pretty exciting week, isn't it? Oh, I'm living high on the hog. I've got tons of money. And then it's kind of at the end of that six months that you're like, that was maybe not such a good decision. They're in the first week, not the last. And here John introduces us in this time some new characters on the scene. We've been following through the entire book these engaging conversations between the kind of the crowds, the disciples, the Jews, and Jesus. And now we're going to have a new one interjected into the conversation. And all of these people are, again, trying to figure out who Jesus exactly is. Who is this guy? Who is this? I mean, he's a poor, homeless, carpenter kind of guy who doesn't have any kind of formal education. But yet when he teaches, it's really kind of interesting because it's profound. And he speaks with authority and now he's doing miracles. And by this point in his ministry, he's healing and he's doing very much stuff. Who is this guy? And our challenge is going to be, as we examine these characters, to look at the ways in which they attempt to create a Jesus of their own making, a personal Jesus, their own pocket size Savior. Starting in verse 1, Jesus goes about in Galilee. He's not going around Judea. Why? Because the Jews are about to kill him. He knows that. And it's time for the great holy feast of booths. So his brothers... These are his brothers, your footnote may say brothers and sisters, it's his family. These are his half-siblings. They are biological. Mary had other children after Jesus. Just know that, that's what takes place. And they start to have this conversation with Jesus. And I, I find this to be one of the more intriguing conversations with him in the entire kind of ministry of Christ. Because they love him, obviously. They, I mean, he's their half-brother. They love him, 
They want him to do well. They believe in his miracles because they've watched them, but they don't believe he's the Messiah. It's this really kind of interesting combination of recognizing so much of who he is, but missing the big picture. So they give him counsel, which again is hysterical, that the brothers would sit down with the maker of heaven and earth and try to give him counsel on how he should conduct himself. They say, "Uh, leave here, it's time for you to go. I know the Jews are trying to kill you in Judea, but we'll figure out how to get away from them. Go to Judea so that the crowds can find you again. We know that this point of your ministry, the crowds have kind of left you alone a little bit. John's told it in such a way that in the previous kind of chapter or so, he reduced the crowd from, say, 12,000 to 12 in the space of a day and a half, which is, that's pretty impressive. But the... The family here is attempting to kind of jumpstart his ministry again and says, look, what are you doing here, man? Jesus, why are you here? You're in the middle of kind of nowhere, so to speak. You're laboring in anonymity. You're doing all of these miracles. And the only people that see your miracles are the people that are kind of right here. Why don't you go back? Why? Well, because verse 4, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. And obviously, you want to be known openly. Why would anybody want to stay a secret? Therefore, you need to go back and generate some notoriety. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. You realize what they're actually doing is they're giving him a marketing strategy. But we love you. You're our brother. We we respect you. We know you're doing these amazing things. But honestly, if you want to build a name for yourself, if you want to build a following for yourself, if you want to build a resume or reputation, you can't do it in this backwater podunk town. You can't do it like healing people on the side over here where no one knows. If you're going to build yourself an empire, you've got to be where the people are. So go to the people. I find find this just so unbelievable. It sounds so innocent, doesn't it? Look, if you want to build for yourself a following, go to where the people are. Therefore, you will have people to follow you. But the interesting thing is what the Holy Spirit tells us about them in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. They want him to do well. They love him. They want him to make a name for himself, make a living for himself. But they do not believe that he is the Messiah. They do not believe that he is the King of Kings. They do not believe that he is the Lord on high. Instead, they're just giving him marketing advice. The problem is they've gotten the miracles, but they've misunderstood the significance. They believe him to be a mighty man, but not the mighty God. They've got the external signs, but missed the internal significance. And the result is they're giving him simply external advice. Some of you, if you were converted kind of later in life... Or maybe you were converted from a family that was unbelieving. You can relate to this kind of experience. Where the family's like, well, 
Good for you. I'm so glad for you. Have you considered doing such and such? And you're like, oh, that's the worst advice I've ever heard to do that. But I understand that they love me, and in theory, they're being well-meaning. I mean, I, I get it, but they're way wrong. When I was in seminary, I used to get that one all of the time, actually, when I would talk with people. They'd be like, oh, what are you? I'm a student. Oh, I I guess. What are you studying? I'm studying divinity. What does that mean? Well, I'm studying to be a pastor. Oh, great. Have you considered doing such and such? That's terrible advice. But I appreciate the fact that you love me. You see, that's what his brothers are doing is they're attempting to create the type of Savior that they think is the right kind. And what does, do they think is the right kind of person going to look like? Well, it's going to be a person who's going to have a huge following. It's going to be a person who's famous. It's going to be a person who has generated a name for himself, a person who is self-promoting, who is respectable and dignified. This is the person who's made it out of poverty, who's pulled himself up by his bootstraps, who's made it out of the slums and into the elite They're giving him marketing advice. His counsel to them I find to be incredibly intriguing, though. As they're giving him their advice that they think is best, it would would be difficult for this to not feel like a complete and total rebuke. My time's not yet come, but yours is always here. And the reason being is because the world doesn't hate you because you're part of it. It does hate me because I'm not part of it. Wait, what? He's actually contrasting it. The world doesn't hate you to his brothers. At this point, they're going to, many of them be converted. Uh, they will change. But at this point, they hate you because you belong to the world. Uh, it's kind of like your immune system in theory is not supposed to fight the parts of your body that are actually in your body. Now, that doesn't always happen. We have autoimmune disease. But in theory, the world's not going to go after you because you're just like them. You're part of the world. Jesus, however, is not. He's different. He is his own. He is from on high. And therefore, his timing, his plan, his agenda, and his mission are different. He doesn't need to generate a crowd at this point because it's not time for him to die yet. That will happen at Passover, not at the Festival of Booths. He's going to make sure that there's a gigantic crowd at that point. At this point, the disciples aren't yet ready. They haven't yet fully galvanized their view that he is the savior of mankind. That will happen on the way to Jerusalem for Passover. There are so many pieces that are not yet in place for this trip. He's going to wait until Passover where he can have a coronation event, have Palm Sunday, and then have them kill him. But the brothers don't get that. They're simply concerned for his promotion. And you see, I would say this is actually a great danger for us as we do this, is to look at we bring our own values, our own things that we see as being important and impose them upon Christ to turn him into this same kind of thing. The same kind of man, the same kind of Savior. 
I was reading one of my school books this week. Actually, it was yesterday. I was reading this. I was like, oh my goodness, this is one of my favorite illustrations for this ever. The guy was talking about praying for the sick. And as he was writing about, he wasn't talking, I was reading it, but as he's writing about praying for the sick, uh, he's describing a prayer meeting where he had prayed with a couple of his colleagues. This guy was a seminary professor some other part of the world. And how his colleagues had, when they had prayed for the sick person, said, Lord, we submit yourself to, to, your, uh, to your will, no matter what. We trust that you were good. We trust that your plan is good. Therefore, we will submit ourselves to you. And it was interesting. His response was, that's wrong. I can never submit myself to the idea that a sick person should have to stay sick. Like, Brother, what you have now since put in writing is that you refuse to submit yourself to God. That's kind of problematic. Because what you are in essence doing is coming alongside and voicing the very voice of his brothers and saying, look, you need to be the kind of guy that I want. You need to have the kind of plan that I want. You need to have the agenda that I want as opposed to the agenda of God. As opposed to the plan of God. You see, the brothers have a problem with submission. They cannot submit themselves to the person of Christ and therefore they will not submit themselves to the plan of Christ. And I would suggest that is a great challenge that is continuing for us today is we as maybe believers in the room, maybe not, to be confronted with the person of Jesus and to say, will I receive who he is? And if I receive who he is, will I receive his plan as well? Trusting that he is the good God and he knows exactly what he's doing. The story doesn't stop here, though. The brothers send him, they try to get him to go. He rebukes them. He sends them on ahead and says, I'll do things in my time. He waits till they go, and then he kind of quietly, not sneaks, but in private finds his way to the feast. And as he's finding his way to the feast, we see the second category of uh, character here that shows up in the passage. They've already shown up once, the Jews, but they're going to show up again and again here. We see in verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. We see in verse 11, the Jews are hunting for him. They're going throughout the entirety of the feast. Where is he? 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 And it's not the like, oh, where is he? I'd like to listen to what he has to say. Not so much. This is the where is he? We need to find him so that we might have an accident take place. So that something heavy might accidentally fall off the roof onto him or he be drug away or the crowd be incited to do something. We need to stop him. In verse 14 and following, we see kind of as he gets there and begins to teach, the interchange begins to take place with the Jews and with the crowd and it all gets a bit complicated. As he begins to teach, suddenly there, uh, we want to kill Jesus, has a, a pause put on it as they kind of run into something new. <laughs> Namely, his teaching, and it blows their mind. The, wow, I've never 
heard this before, but it's really good. And that's really profound. This is one of those types of feelings that uh, I know seminary students can a lot of times relate to where they've studied the Bible really well and then they get into class and sit under a professor who's you know, brilliant. And you're like, my head explodes. I don't know. Wow, it's so rich and so deep and so full and the Bible is so true and it's so wonderful. And you just kind of get overwhelmed for a moment. They're overwhelmed with the quality of the teaching of Christ. How is it? I love this. Rather than marveling and praising, instead they marvel and attempt to discredit. How is it that this guy can teach like that? He's ignorant. He's an idiot. He's a poor country bumpkin who's never studied. How on earth can he know this much? He has studied. He's studied in private and he's studied in heaven. I think that would count. But they don't understand. You see, again, they're they're mimicking the brothers. The brothers refuse to submit to the person and plan of Christ. Here, instead, the Jews refuse to submit to the authority and the message of Christ. And it shows so much about their agenda with that question. It's not, how is it that he knows such rich truth? That's actually a legitimate question. How is it that this guy knows truth like this? But instead they ask, how is it he can do this without credentials? How is it that he can do this without a diploma? How is it that he can do this without our input? Because they are the teachers. How is it that he can do this without having gone to our school? And Jesus' answer again is a rebuke, and this one's searing. My teaching's not mine. The content, it's not mine. But it's his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether uh, the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Uh, So they're not just content, but also permission. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. He, He obliterates their argument obliterates their argument. Why? The content of what he's teaching, why is it so mind-blowing? Why is it so, uh, such a source of wonder for them? Is because it's true and it's from heaven. They're asking the wrong question. It's not an issue of credentials. It's where did he get this? He got it from glory itself. And so in not receiving his teaching, they refuse his authority. They refuse him. They refuse to receive him and thereby refuse to receive God. And again, what a tremendous temptation this is for the fallen heart, for the sinful man or woman or boy or girl is to get caught up, quote, with the credentials with the knowledge element of it, with the neatness, with the curiosity of the Scriptures. And to miss that this is a voice from heaven. 
I mean, there's a great danger in this, even in our own denomination, that when we read the scriptures, we're trying to constantly fill that kind of mental computer in our head, and we forget that when I'm reading the scriptures to you from the pulpit, you're hearing God speaking to you. And we forget sometimes that not only are you hearing God speaking to you, but you're hearing God speaking things that He wrote for you, to you. And because we refuse to submit to that, to God's Word, to His voice, we, the same thing, we, we miss the truth that is offered. I mean, just for a moment, think how different it would have been for the Jews had the religious leaders gone, oh, this guy's the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for all along. The world would be totally different. But instead, they can't hear him. They refuse to submit to him. And then lastly, third character, the crowd. I love the crowd. A good mob is always interesting, isn't it? It's exciting, at least, if nothing else. He goes to the temple, he teaches, the Jews kind of marvel at that. Well, let's back up first. As he gets in there, the Jews are looking for him. This is verse 11. The Jews are looking for him. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Verse 12, you see the response of the crowd. There's much muttering about him and among the people. And some are saying, he's a good man. And some are saying, he's leading people astray. And you get this kind of mixed message already. And this mixed message is going to kind of continue murmuring and burbling and rumbling in the background. And he goes into the temple to teach and he has this confrontation with the Jews and they say, how on earth can he do this? He's uneducated, he's ignorant. And Jesus says, I've heard from heaven. And so Jesus answers again, the verse 19, kind of getting into the end here where we see the crowd's response. Uh, has not Moses given you the law? This is the worst of it to the Pharisees, to the Jews. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep it? Why do you seek to kill me? And again, this is also just fantastic in verse 20, the crowd's response. Jesus asks a rhetorical question, why do you seek to kill me? And look at the two sentences that follow each other. You have a demon who's seeking to kill you. You see, I'm going to pretty much guarantee that if the first sentence is true, there's a really easy answer to the second one. If he has a demon, the correct answer to the second one is everybody. Because I don't want a demon and a person filled with a demon hanging out with me all the time. I want them gone. I want them removed. I want them not in my midst. But yet you see the crowd is a bit schizophrenic. They're a bit ambivalent. They are confused. He's a good man. He's leading people astray. He's got a demon. Who's trying to kill you? What's going on? We don't know. Ah, But we're excited about it. And you see, that's actually the heart of the crowd right there. What's going on? We have no idea, but man alive, are we excited about it. And I would suggest that out of all of these responses, this is perhaps the most damning and the most dangerous for American Christians. To approach Christianity with this perspective of, I have no idea what's going on, but man alive, am I excited about that thing? 
This is also called a dabbler. The old fancy word for it's a dilettante, a person who uh, is an amateur. They, they like to kind of learn a little bit about it. They get excited about it, but it's not lasting. It doesn't stick. It doesn't continue. Some of you, you're like, I want to play guitar. You're like, I'm going to learn. And you bought your guitar. And you go, wow, my hand does not behave the way it's supposed to behave. And getting my fingers onto the strings is really hard. And then learning which strings they're supposed to get onto. And then you make it maybe past the first week to kind of figure out to get that point where you no longer feel like it's a possessed by something else hand and then it starts hurting and the fingertips get the grooves and the muscle right there starts to hurt and then what happens after that suddenly that guitar goes in the case and the case suddenly gets slid under the bed and the guitar no longer is interesting because it's difficult okay maybe that one doesn't relate to you quite as well Uh, let's say how many people go jogging on January 2nd (laughs) It's a dabbler. It's a person who, I don't really know what's going on. I don't know anything about exercise. I'm not really committed to it. But man alive, am I excited about it for a little bit. And I would suggest that is in so many ways American Christianity. And wrongly so. That I don't know the breadth and the depth of the scriptures. I don't really like reading my Bible. Heaven forbid I actually enjoy prayer. But boy, am I going to be excited about that for a little bit. I can have a mile's excitement and a millimeter's depth. Welcome to the crowd. You see, this is the crowd that uh, at the next feast are going to show up, and they're going to get so excited and so worked up into a frenzy that they're actually going to try to crown Jesus king. They're going to bring palm branches. They're going to start celebrating. They're going to start chanting and singing. And then when he goes to the temple, he's going to clean the temple. And then he's going to go home. And they're going to freak out because they got excited about something. And as mobs do, when it doesn't turn out the way they want, they get excited in a different way. And a short bit after that, they're going to have him killed. Because man alive are they excited, but they don't know about what. So what do we do with a passage like this? What do we do with characters like this? What do we do with rebukes from Jesus like this? You've hopefully seen this theme through many sermons now as you've sat and listened. But challenge number one is to intentionally and actively submit ourselves to the Lord Jesus. As He is and not how I want. I mean, I I won't lie. I love the idea of a divine Santa Claus. I love the idea of Jesus being my holy vending machine, and every time I need him, he gives me stuff. I love the idea of a divine get-out-of-jail-free card. I love the idea of the oops-I-messed-up-let's-make-it-all-better card. The problem is that that's a God in my own image. That's not the God of the Bible. That's the Savior that I have created and not the Savior of the Scriptures. And I need to submit myself to the real one. Secondly, is we need to learn who He is. To devote ourselves to the study and knowledge of this Savior. 
But not just for the uh, accumulation of data, not just to build our minds sharper, not to give us some unbelievable theological Rolodex of 85-cent words that we can go through and these unbelievable factoids that are buried and names mentioned one time in the Bible. That's neat and all. But instead, to fan the flame of love in our hearts. That the more we know the more we love. The more we know, the more we love. Many of you will remember, because you have been at some point, but newlyweds, or even better yet, the engaged couple. The engaged couple is my favorite couple. Because every single piece of information they receive is something that is a source of an opportunity for love. It's like, oh, they have chronic bad breath. Oh, isn't that adorable? You're like, I love you. That's fantastic. I guarantee 20 years from now, that will not be quite as charming. But I, I love that you're excited about that. You know, that's the only illustration I'm going to use because I'll make fun of something inappropriate. I'm sure somebody would be like, why are you talking about me? I didn't know it was you. I promise. I'm sorry. Thankfully, we don't have any of those moments with the Lord Jesus. There's no bad breath. But instead, we, we need to be actively accumulating knowledge of our Savior that in the same way we might, we might grow in love for Him. That personal, intimate, deep, rich knowledge and love of our Savior, our great and mighty King, the one who went to the cross for us, the one who knows us by name, the one who knew us prior to our creation, the one in whose mind we existed prior to our arrival in the womb, our King, that we might love him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for King Jesus. Thank you that he's a great Savior. And Lord, we do confess that we too often try to make him much smaller than that and make him the kind that we want as opposed to the kind that you've provided. Too often we find ourselves like, well, surely, Jesus, you can't die. (laughs) What a plan we would have had. Same as the disciples. And instead, we would have mirrored the plan of Satan instead of the plan of heaven. Forgive us for doing that even now. We do ask that you would take Satan from us, take his temptations away, that we might love Christ more fully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.